0: Ten years ago today, the U.S. military began bombing targets in Afghanistan. It was just three weeks after 9-11. No one knew it at the time, but a secret team of CIA officers was already on the ground, paving the way for the fall of the Taliban. Most of these operatives have never been
1: named. But tonight, David Martin hears the story from the man who led the covert operation. By the time bombing started, the CIA's Gary Schroen had been on the ground for nearly two weeks. One last mission for a 59-year-old man who on 9-11 had been filling out his retirement papers.
2: Everybody in the United States wanted to be the first person to go after bin Laden and get this this, this hunt going. And here they had, they had given me that role.
1: Schroen, who had spent 32 years as a covert operator, was to lead a small team of Americans, shown here with their faces blurred in a photo released by the CIA. The CIA's chief of counterterrorism gave him explicit orders to kill.
2: I want you to cut bin Laden's head off, send, put it on dry ice, and send it back to me so I can show the president. Was he serious?
1: Yeah, I think so. CIA pilots flew the team, codenamed Jawbreaker, in a Russian helicopter over a 14,000 foot pass into northern Afghanistan,
2: armed with a small fortune. We had $3 million in cash, uh, in $100 bills that were uh, non sequential and shrink wrapped in $100,000 bundles. How heavy is $3 million? It's about 50 pounds. 50 pounds of cash? Yeah, 50 pounds of cash.
1: That one helicopter, which not by accident had the tail number 91101 was their only way in and their only way out. There was
2: no rescue plan. The military said that it was too dangerous to send their personnel in, and so we went by ourselves.
1: The CIA and military now work closely together in operations like the bin Laden raid. It wasn't like that at the beginning. The whole US
2: military was
1: caught flat-footed. I don't think anyone had
2: ever raised the issue, how do we go into Afghanistan?
1: The CIA team linked up with fighters from the Northern Alliance who were trying to break through Taliban front lines and head for Kabul. They couldn't do it without U.S. airstrikes.
2: Who's uh, directing the bombing? Nobody was calling the shots. It was almost useless bombing, uh, because we really weren't impacting the front lines, which is where the, the, the Taliban fighters were hunkered down.
1: It took another two weeks for American Special Forces to arrive with laser devices to pinpoint the targets. Then the bombing finally began shifting to the front lines. Once it did... Our guys
2: were listening to the radios and the panic, the screaming, the shouting as bunkers you know, down the line were going up from 2,000-pound bombs. Uh, I mean, they were just simply devastating, and they broke.
3: Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a very special guest on with me today, CIA security officer, Thomas Pecora. How's it going?
0: Great, John. Thanks for having me.
3: No worries at all. So you spent a long time working for the government, uh, working for the agency, wearing different hats and working different uh, locations in the world. I want to kind of walk through all of that uh, if we can. And then you also have a book that's coming out very soon. And I-, I would like to talk to talk about that as well. What date is the book releasing and what's the name of it?
0: Uh, the book's called The Guardian Life in the Crosshairs of the CIA's War on Terror. It's uh, published will be published on 7 May. 2019. So it's coming out very soon. Um, it's uh, available on pre-publication sale right now on Amazon and and Barnes and Noble. And um, it chronicles uh, it's a it's a historical memoir, chronicling my 24 years as a CIA security officer. And uh, uh, it, it basically tells tells my story from from before I got into the CIA and all the way until until uh, I retired in, in 2013.
3: Okay so a lot of times people who kind of work in, in some of those security roles have military backgrounds or something like that is that case for you or
0: no i uh back in in the day back uh, i was uh i was living in Milwaukee Wisconsin that's my hometown and i was uh this was back in the in the 80s and i i was uh I finished grad school and i was coaching wrestling and i had no real background other than a short stint in Marine Officer Candidate School. I went through the first increment, which is a six-week class. So other than that, I had no military background. But um, I saw an ad in the local newspaper for uh, the CIA. So I applied, and in 1989, I was uh, selected. Um, and I went into the Office of Security. And um, yeah, in well, at the time, it was called the generalist role, but now it's called the multi. Uh, disciplined security officer position MDSO and um, uh, with no no military background or uh, or even law enforcement and received all my training um, while I was in the office of security then uh, a variety of other training um, uh, courses at the CIA so later on, as, as we started to get more into the war zone situation, we started to hire uh, more former military, uh, uh, especially uh, in light of uh, some of the combat positions um, that we'd be occupying um, in Iraq, Afghanistan, et cetera.
3: And aside from the very beginning of uh, the agency and, and the forefathers of the agency, was this up to the point – of Iraq and Afghanistan, was this like the most direct combat that the CIA had been involved in and, you know, since the kind of beginning? Um, I wasn't, uh,
0: I wasn't around, of course, in the Vietnam uh, era, but um, uh, during Vietnam, we had a significant presence in the war zone uh, and, and we had some large bases and we were involved in a lot of different joint military operations. And so there, were, there was, a, I think, a significant amount of, of you could say, combat um, or exposure to that that dangerous uh, area um, in Vietnam. Less so, probably, in in, in the Korean conflict, and then um, and then uh, or earlier, that is, before Vietnam. Um, but after that, uh, the, the things kind of quieted down. It was just the, the Cold War. Uh, working against the Russians and then um, when the wall went down things kind of changed and we uh, we ended up with um, uh, the war zones in the Middle East and uh, the threat level significantly rose and we got involved in a lot more uh, collaboration with the military again uh, working against um, uh, terrorism and 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 uh, and that in case of uh, Saddam Hussein, in, in Iraq, and then later on in Afghanistan, so uh, significantly more uh, combat time uh, in the last uh, last decade.
3: Yeah, for sure. So would the uh, would it be correct to say the majority of your experience and overseas experience is like Middle East and and Southeast Asia? Or
0: oh, I kind of bounced around. I, I was uh, I was not your typical security officer. Um, because of the timing and because of my interests and, and some of the things that I was able to uh, get into, um, and a lot of that was just the, they were available at that time and they weren't available before. Um, I I spent um, uh, quite a bit of time in, in South America and uh, in Asia uh, besides the, the Middle East um, uh, working counterterrorism and uh and also uh especially south america I, I was working uh, I was this what they call the South America guy for uh, training presidential protection details for foreign governments. so um I had a chance to travel a lot down there uh, that was that was one of the nicer uh positions I had in my uh twenty four years.
3: So that's basically just training a security team for a foreign nations uh, president.
0: Correct. Correct. And I did some some um, uh, some countries in the Middle East, um, one or two in, in Europe, and then um, one or two in, in Asia. I see. And that was just a break between um, uh, a couple a couple of other different positions. But yeah, the best way to describe it is kind of to start out with, uh, you know, my my career came. I came in in, in a traditional security role. Which is um, we do a lot of personnel security, which is pretty boring stuff. I, I start out doing background investigations, and um, and that's just basically interviews and uh, record checks, and it's a good start uh, to learning um, the security uh, arena and and to understand um, the process, uh, how people are are brought on board, or if they're going to get a clearance, how, how that process works. And then later on, I got. Uh, I got. We bounce a lot. Uh, every two to three years, we change jobs. And my second position was at the in the security duty office at headquarters. And um, that's when that's when terrorism um, really uh, uh, struck us because uh, in 1993, prior to the first attack on the uh, World Trade Center, um, the CIA headquarters was attacked by a Pakistani terrorist. And uh, I was on duty during that attack and I called the, the um, local law enforcement and uh, was uh, heavily involved in, in the after action right up. It was a it was a pretty chaotic time where it was a it was a, a, a watershed moment for us because, um, it, you know, it was, we, it was a, we were attacked at our front door. So that was at, at Langley or? Yes. Yeah, it was a. Um, uh, the terrorist decided to attack uh, our personnel as they were uh, turning off the main road into the CIA compound and there's a turn lane there and uh, he waited till there was a red light and he um, jumped out of his car and uh, he shot and killed two of our officers and several mm-hmm. others and then uh, and then he was able to get away it was, it was uh, basically later that day he flew off to Pakistan and, and it took us a couple of years to track him down um, but then he was uh, lured out of his hideout into a, one of the main cities in Pakistan. And he was captured, brought to the U.S. He was tried and convicted, and he was executed.
3: Oh wow! So he was executed yeah. in the United States.
0: Yes. Yeah, um, he was. Uh, uh, this in Virginia, uh, they were, capital punishment was was still in effect, and uh, and he was uh, he was executed.
3: Wow, you know, I've I've never heard of that. That's the first time yeah. I've heard of that.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, it was a, uh, and it was you know, it was pre uh, uh, the first attack on the Trade Center. Okay. So it was really one of the first, um, you know, major terrorist incidents, uh, and for us, it was a major uh, a major change in, in mindset. You know, before it was. <laughs> Yeah, uh, nobody had, would attack the CIA headquarters. Uh, the result, there was a lot of deterrent effect, and but we had to rethink uh, our security after that. And for me, it was it was a it was a wake up to a uh, a new world, uh, one that I inhabited for the next uh, t- you know twenty something years.
3: So, was this the individual who carried out this attack? Um, was he involved with any organizations or was it, it, was just like a kind of a lone wolf thing.
0: He was, a, it was kind of a lone wolf thing. And he was, um, you know, he is, uh, he had issues with the, uh, with the U S involvement in Afghanistan and, um, and some of the Middle East, uh, policy issues. And so he decided to, um, buy, uh, an AK 47 and, um, uh, he decided to, to attack the headquarters compound, actually the the outside, and he didn't really have, mu- according to his own testimony, he didn't have really much of, of a plan after that. He actually thought he was going to get caught, but yeah. when he didn't, he, he just jumped a plane and went uh, went back to Pakistan. That's we crazy. at first, to tell you what, this is uh, talk about fast forwarding to now, the you know, situations we're dealing with now. Uh, we at first thought it was a disgruntled employee. Really. Yes, so we—that's the first thing we were looking at. Well, it wasn't terrorism; it was a disgruntled employee. Wow! And uh, now, of course, um, active shooter situations are uh, unfortunately way too much, too common.
3: Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, <clears throat> uh, I guess a, a lot of people don't realize, but the first World Trade Center bombing was connected to um, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was really kind of. Uh, the mastermind behind the 9/11 attacks. So that that's just I, it's so crazy. I've never heard of that. At that time, the 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 kind of radical Islamic terrorism wasn't such a big thing then. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, and there's there's a one of the interesting things um, in my book is the the parallel of my career and terrorism. Throughout that 24 years, because as I said, that was that was a that was a wake up moment for the CIA, and it was a it was a, a pretty um, uh, <laughs> chaotic uh, moment for me uh, personally to, to be involved in, in in a situation like that. And I thought, okay, now I, I, I better I better get prepared. So I got heavily involved in um, protective operations. I um, I was actually. Uh, Part of the first unit uh, put together by the CIA to do overseas protection of our personnel uh, working in hazardous places and um, one of the one of the reasons why I wrote the book was um, it's a, it's the prequel to the thirteen hours story the Benghazi story mm. because um, that story basically talks about um, how protective operations were being done after nine eleven um, but uh, what I talk about in, uh, in my book is the beginning, uh, which started in 1990, actually, and the first official training class in 1991, which I attended, and then how we operated from that moment on all the way till 9-11. Um, and uh, it, was a, it was a covert unit. It was uh, – nobody knew who we were operating. We worked all over the world in, in a variety of really dangerous places and um, – uh, we were highly su- successful in, in protecting our personnel and uh, enabling them to work in those dangerous places and collect information that was vital to, um, to uh, our uh, protecting the United States.
3: Did you have any, I thought maybe I read this somewhere, did you have any experiences in Mogadishu?
0: Yes, and uh, my first overseas deployment in, uh, as a member of the POC, that was what we were called back then, was the Protective Operations Cadre, uh, was a deployment in uh, 1993 to uh, Mogadishu. I was, I was one of a, uh, a number of teams that went in, and I was one of the latter group uh, of teams. And we went in, and um, this was when things really started to heat up. And this was just before... The Black Hawk Down, the battle for Mogadishu, um, famous book and movie uh, Black Hawk Down, happened in October of '93. I was there uh, several months before that, and I left in, in September. And um, that was that. Uh, what's crazy about that situation is we didn't know till way later that um, a major player was going to get involved, and uh, he was going to start to really affect. Um, what we did overseas, the the U.S. and the U.S. military. And that was um, uh, Osama bin Laden. He actually sent some of his trained guys into Mogadishu to uh, assist uh, fighting against uh, the U.N. forces, specifically the U.S. forces. And uh, they were were the the unit that basically came in and... um, uh, caused the, the downing of the Blackhawks um, they they brought in the the tactics of using multiple rpgs to to attack helicopters and um, uh, they changed the the, the whole um, uh, texture of the of the battlefield at that time because prior to their arrival the Somalis were very unorganized um, they they didn't operate at night they um they were very inaccurate in terms of their mortar fire but when this group came in all of a sudden we got pinpoint accurate mortar fire we got attacks at night uh they they got very very organized and methodical and uh, it really uh, changed the, the complexion of the battlefield
3: i would imagine that maybe some of those guys had experience uh, in afghanistan against the russians
0: yes they were they were coming from all over and um uh, they were bringing that, that war zone experience, um, uh, to, to this new front. And it was, you know, attack, atta- attacking the U S, um, outside the borders. Um, probably, you know, probably in their thought pattern was the later to do it on inside the border. But, um, um, uh, there were some interesting parallels in my career. I, I kept running into this Osama bin Laden guy in terms of, um, some of the locations I was working, I ended up working in Khartoum, uh, Sudan, uh, where he and a variety of other terrorists were, that's, that was their hangout. We called it their, their club med, because, um, uh, Khartoum at the time, uh, would allow them to basically, uh, operate with, uh, impunity. Uh, that's where they went to, uh, uh have their R&Rs, their rest re- uh, and <laughs> recreation uh, away from any um, uh, attacking forces, so no other governments could go after them there. So they were uh, pretty safe, and um, that's probably where they did a lot of planning. But they, but at the time of uh, Bin Laden wasn't a big a big player uh, at the time uh, in Khartoum. We had Carlos the Jack. we had, uh, um, Hezbollah. We had Hamas. We had Abu Nidal. All the big famous um, terrorist groups were were hanging around in in cartoon at the time.
3: You know that that's that's really interesting with Hamas and Hezbollah being Hezbollah, more specifically, being supported by the Iranians. I, I wonder if they had an issue with Bin Laden. I know now you, you know the Iran has issues with a lot of the Sunni uh, Sunni nations. I wonder if they had an issue.
0: Yeah, uh, I I wasn't really um, um, well versed in in terms of the interaction between the uh, the different groups. I just knew that they were there. They had their compounds. They were hanging out, and um, uh, I read about some of the crazy things that are, that occurred back then. They, they started. Uh, I guess they were bored, and they started doing dry runs. Um, they would they would do practice attacks on uh, our motorcades moving through through the city, going from our housing compound to the embassy and back, and uh, so things got pretty, pretty scary there because you didn't know whether they were practicing or, they were, or this was the real thing at that point. And we had to, we ended up doing a diplomatic, uh, what they call demarche, um, where, where we have, we went to the officially to the, to the Sudanese government, and say, listen, this is this is not a good thing, and the Sudanese basically then told those uh, terrorist groups just to knock it off. So they backed down, but, um, uh, it, it was a pretty, pretty scary time. Um, and then later on when I, I worked, um, uh, in a variety of other places, some of which, uh, was in the Middle East where, um, the effects of that radical fundamentalism, um, had expanded. I mean, uh, when I was working in Asia in, uh, 2001 to 2004, um, uh the one of the some militans um number one guys in asia was working actively to go after uh the US embassy in singapore and then when that plot failed he uh his backup plan was to go after the US embassy in manila and uh, uh his name was humbali and uh he was a he was the number one representative for Al-Qaeda in, in Asia and um, a very, very smart, active guy. And he was making use of some of the local talent. There was a uh, Jamia Islamiya uh, bomb expert that he was using to, to put together his attacks. And this, this guy was uh, infamous for setting off five bombs in Manila in one day. This is uh in uh, December of nineteen uh pardon me, December of two thousand. And uh so there were there were some very scary characters running around in Asia at that time.
3: Yeah, I know Bin Laden had uh pretty strong ties in, in some of those um some of those countries. I know uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, I think, had ties in the Philippines and um uh and I guess a lot of people aren't aware of it, but the Philippines have a long history of being a place where these some of these terrorist groups would train and and spend time before they kind of rotated into the Middle East or into Afghanistan.
0: Absolutely. Um, um, the, the 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 architect behind the whole using aircraft um, to attack um, cities, uh, he. He was uh, first spotted in in manila and um uh he, he was he actually blew uh, he he burnt his his apartment down and um that's how we we first got uh tracking on him and i'm going a little uh, trying to remember the name of this guy um ramsey Ramzi yeah. ramsey and uh who who by the way is the, is one of the few terrorists that we have in actually, uh in actually, our, our, our penal system, he's uh, located in a supermax in um, Colorado, mm, and right. uh, he was operating in the Philippines, uh, and he was working his plan out of the Philippines. And w- so,
3: was he related to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed?
0: Oh, they they were all um, they were all part of, of a collective group that were working on these attack plans, and um, uh, so they influenced each other. Mm. And they, you know, he, he's the one who st- really started the idea of of using, um, um, these large aircraft as as weapons. Right. Right.
3: And then I think shortly, oh no, he got caught in 93, mm. right? Or, or yep. okay. And then shortly and, after 9-11, they went after like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and some of those mm-hmm. other guys. Yeah.
0: Yeah. K- KSM was, was caught, um, in Pakistan, um, yeah, he was—he uh, was a major player. The, These—the same places seem to always come up, you know—the um, the areas where there's less control and there's a lot more um, uh, ability for people to move in and out and attend training camps. Like the Philippines, as you mentioned before, was, was a big place for training camps. Pakistan, for quite a while, was the seat of so many different attacks because so many people went through training there. There, there was a uh, major um, network of attackers that were working out of Pakistan. Uh, in fact, at one point, uh, when there was uh, the airlines declared that nobody could bring anything on, uh, you know, on carry on, that was a result of uh, an attack uh, plan based out of um, out of Pakistan.
3: So what, uh, so they were stopping carry-ons on any flights yep. from Pakistan? Yeah.
0: No, across the board. They, uh, for, there was a, there was a threat from a liquid explosive. So, uh, they basically, the airline just said, no, no carry-on. Wow. So for a short period of time, yeah, it was, uh, that was for some, uh, very interesting times. <laughs> yeah, I got to Yeah, be kind of weird, um. So,
3: so kind of rewinding back to your time in, in Mogadishu, were you there for a long mm-hmm. time? Or? I
0: was there for about fifty days. Uh, we were we were working. Um, we were running protection details for our our case officers, our, our, our um, officers who were out uh, collecting data in a collaborative um, effort with the U.S. military because one of the biggest. Um, Impediments to the UN mission there were these um, these warlords, and one of which popped to the top of the list was a guy named Mohammed Adid. And uh, Mohammed Faraided was a was formerly a a friendly to the UN forces, but he uh, eventually turned on and his troops uh, killed a bunch of Pakistanis. uh, UN forces um, at a a checkpoint called checkpoint pasta up in Northern Mo and, uh, from that moment on, he, he became, uh, enemy number one. And so at one point the, the U S decided to bring in some heavy hitters. And that was, they they brought in the Rangers, uh, and hiding within the Rangers was Delta force. Right. And, um, and that's the black Hawk down, um, situation later on. But, uh, at the time, uh, we were, <laughs> We were operating, trying to you know move our people around, getting them to, to meet their assets and uh, collect data. And uh, uh, Adid knew who we were because he was a former friendly, and he started to target us specifically. In fact, uh, at one point, he had uh, facial descriptions of three of us, three out of the four on the team. He had uh, license plates on most of our cars. He had and he was really actively working to to get us, put a $20,000 reward out for each of our heads.
3: Wow.
0: And uh, yeah, so it, it got to be a very, very dangerous work environment. And that's where we started to really learn the craft that we call low protection, low profile protective operations. And uh, that's something that we specialized in. Um, and and that we we were very successful in um, to give you an idea, idea what I'm talking about. Um, as I said, we've been doing low low profile protection since uh, approximately 1990, and uh, during this from then until I re- left in 2013, we never lost a lost a protectee, and oh, wow. we've uh, we only lost one one uh, one officer. During that, that time. And that was, um, uh, now I was doing the primary mission, which is uh, mobile uh, security, moving our people from uh, A to B and doing you know, uh, clandestine operations. When we were putting, put in a position where we had to do static, where we were doing more defensive positions like um, um, protecting a site, which is really not our primary. We were not so effective, that, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that we aren't in—we're not in control in that situation. We're—we're uh, we're just added security, and so we've lost some people um, in those circumstances. And that uh, some examples would be Coast and Ben and the uh, situation in Benghazi.
3: Yeah, up until um, well, Coast, I think. If I'm not mistaken, it was 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 the largest loss of life for the agency uh, for a long
0: time, or yes, yes, that was a that was a major uh, a major hit. We lost um, I think seven people in, um, and and uh, two the chief or of them more. Base. Yep, chief of base, and uh, that was a that was unfortunately a a, a preventable incident, um, and it was. If you've seen the movie uh, Zero Dark Thirty, they they, they cover that, that's a pretty good movie for covering um, the war on terror. Uh, it's kind of condensed version, and uh, it's not a hundred percent accurate. Hollywood does what it does, but yeah. um, but it does give you a good idea of of kind of the pattern. Well, you know, how we were pulling the thread to kind of get to Bin Laden and how long it took, and, and what kind of uh, what kind of work and and, and teamwork it actually took to get it done.
3: So the, the, um, for the, the incident at coast, when you say it was preventable, you, do you mean just by keeping that individual away from the base that the guy who actually,
0: well, uh, standard, standard operating procedures were not followed. Um, and he, this, this individual, an unvetted asset was able to come in, into the, into the camp and, and actually get out of the car without having been searched. And that's, I mean, it, it comes down to something as basic as that, right? And uh, I, I hate to say they, um, but you know that that there was, there was that was an executive decision. That was not the, the security officers on the ground, right? Get that call, right? And and, and, and that's one of, the, one of the risks of, of the business. You know, it, uh you, you sometimes things mistakes are made,
3: right? Right. Yeah, it's very unfortunate. Uh unfortunate situation um so after um after your time in Mogadishu you had you came back home and then what was the next kind of step for you
0: oh uh I came back and um I went right on to a, a counter surveillance unit for the uh director the act um that was actually a former director Gates the, the the director and the deputy director and um at the time we were one of the probably the first <clears throat> major government entity to to do counter surveillance um as part of the protection package and uh, that was a result of, of having learned that um uh, that the real weakness um, in the attack cycle on a protectee is is the surveillance part and that uh if you rely strictly on, uh, guys with guns and armored cars, um, you, are you're, you're not, you're not going to be as secure, you're, you're, you're going to be vulnerable. And, um, the, uh, the best example of that is a situation with a banker named Herrhausen. He was the head of the Deutsche Bank and, um, the Red Army faction targeted him. And, um, so he had, he had a protection detail uh, a very large protection detail, t- t- well trained. There was the the uh, equivalent of Delta Force, German the German Delta Force, and he had the top of line Mercedes Benz armored car. What
3: was that? The, uh, the gsg nine, I think.
0: Or yes, GS G nine guys. Uh, and um, the the terrorists were able to to get right to him, and they killed him, injured his driver, and nobody else was was hurt. They uh, they used an uh, an explosive charge to that was on the back of a bicycle, um, uh, chained to a, um, a pole. And they, w- they, uh, were able to, uh, the time, uh, the attack using uh, a light beam, some pretty high at the time it was pretty high tech engineering, but one of the Red Army faction guys was a former engineer. And, uh, uh, the platter charge went right through the back door of the car and killed the airhouse and that was kind of a wake up call in terms of protections that, you know, it's just guys and guns and armored cars are just not enough. You got, you've got to look at other things. Right. So um, I got in, involved in the, in the uh, counter surveillance and then I went into a unit uh, in our counterterrorism center, which is uh, sp- very specifically counter um, uh, surveillance and surveillance detection and uh, counterterrorism uh, mm-hmm. activities. And I traveled for about two years uh, to a variety of locations um, doing that work. And what I was specifically tasked to do was um, look for the terror, the signature of terrorist surveillance and um, observe our people and other people. Um, And this was in Asia. uh, And then I eventually I I actually worked for General uh, in a variety of ways for General Nash and in Tuzula. Bosnia during that conflict he was worried about the terrorists uh, kind of hiding in the in the non-government Organizations the NGOs and so we were tasked to come in Covertly and to observe his troops and look for this signature and we would we would spot um, You know potential terrorists um, uh, doing route surveillance doing um, surveillance on their on their movements uh, troop movements and we would report in, and then um, General Nash would have his uh, troops change their uh, tactics. Um, and uh, so it was a very interesting time.
3: So, so for the guys that um, you know, you guys are looking at, um, you know, you refer to them as terrorists. Were those guys the Eastern European
0: um, terrorists, were, or, or were they? Yeah, they're mainly they're mainly um, uh, the people from the region. Okay, uh, Bosnians, Croat, um, Serbs, um, everybody was in the conflict. Um, there, there were at the time we weren't sure how things were going to go, and and General Nash was, was extremely concerned that um, that a terrorist attack on his troops is, was probably more likely than a straight on um, military battle. Uh, and so he uh he found out about our counterterrorism unit and he said I want these guys out here so uh I left Milwaukee <laughs> after Christmas uh doing the normal lying to the family that I was going to a training class in uh, Europe and uh, so instead I uh I ended up uh, arriving in Tuzla on New Year's Day um into a nasty cold climate and um uh, we were operating totally clandestine. Uh, I was, uh, dressed in local garb. I was working with two other individuals. We were called, we, we were joking called the ethnic team because we were, uh, we blended in the environment. Uh, I had a full beard. The other two guys, they spoke, uh, Croat and Russian, which were two of the, 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 dialects in the area. So, uh, uh, we were, we were skulking around and, um, uh, providing uh, an early version of what they call now, formerly uh, force protection.
3: Hmm. So this was, um, was this was during the period where there was some ethnic cleansing going on, and um,
0: oh, this like, was, a, yeah, was yeah, the this um, is the, during the conflict, um, and at at the time uh, uh, we were things were things had calmed down in the. In at least that section of Bosnia, um, the, the, Tuzla had been under siege for two years. So there's, was, there was no, hardly any food. There's no, no lights, you know, in most of the parts of the city. It was, uh, it was just terrible. But, um, as over the course of the almost two months that I was there, uh, things started to get better. So this was the tail end of that conflict. Okay. And, and the was U.S. This, is really taking having have an effect.
3: Was this at the point where they had already begun the ethnic cleansing in Kosovo, or this is after it?
0: Oh, this is prior. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. So,
3: you know, yeah. kind of, um, I was watching, uh, I forget it was a documentary or something, and um, it was from the perspective of people from uh, Serbia, from Belgrade. And they were, like, to the effect of kind of complaining about the um, the, the U.S. had done a couple bombing runs into, I think, Belgrade. Mm-hmm. And I remember in the documentary, these people were complaining about how the U.S. was dropping bombs on them. But it's like, uh, you know, they didn't say anything about what, what their government was doing, uh, to, you know, killing all these people uh, prior to that. And I just found it really strange.
0: It was a very strange conflict. I mean, uh, the, the 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 level of devastation that I saw just in that area and in Tusla. Um, I mean, uh, the, the, the 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 depressing um, landscape. I mean, you, you're you're looking at houses that are all shot up. You're looking at people who are cutting down trees and laying them um, across the windows. The, these tree branches to try to stop. Bullets from coming into their houses. Wow! Uh, uh, it was it was a horrific situation, and uh, drastic measures needed to be uh, taken to, to, to stop that conflict. And uh, General Nash's um, mindset was, if uh, if we need four soldiers, uh, I'm sending in eight. And um, it was, it, I think is it was very successful because he. he ba- You know any any other military type units, Bosnians, Serbs, Croats, or whatever, they took one look at that show of force and they said, "Well, probably not going to test this," and that kept the conflict. Uh, You know, that that allowed the the peace process to to uh, uh, be initiated and and go through. Um, And you know, these conflicts there's there's no perfect solution, and the. The, the Somalia incident was a, a was a, a a huge influence on our the u s policy with in terms of military peacekeeping uh, We learned the hard way that um this idea that that we should keep the military profile low um was kind of thrown out the door uh, because uh, that was one of the mistakes that was made and the reason we lost so many people uh, in the Black Hawk Down incident was because um, um, they were the, – the military asked for armor. And uh, the Secretary of Defense, Les Aspen, denied it on the grounds that he didn't want the conflict to look militant. Sorry. And uh, so, so later on, that that, that thought process was – thrown out it's like no we're in here we're going to protect our troops
3: right so at that time uh that you were over there the aggressors in that situation was it the serbians
0: in in the, the conflict had pretty much uh stopped in the area that i was um in tutsa uh in the other areas i I'm, I'm not sure uh, who was who was fighting who at that point but i mean there the um, to, to to pin down the atrocities to just one little group would be would be hard pressed. Right, there was, it was a, kind
3: of a, a lot of go- a
0: lot of things going on at the same yeah. time. Yeah, and I, you know, if you talk to one group, they'll <laughs> they have their story and had, and their pro- pro- their point of view is probably right for that particular moment in time. Right, but the overall conflict was. I mean, you just look at Sarajevo and Sniper Alley. There was a there was a, a a street area where these snipers were operating and they were killing men, women and children.
3: Oh, right! You know, I cer- they were just kind of shooting people dead in the street.
0: Yep. And I mean, at a certain point, you got to say, OK, wh- what is what is that? But these conflicts can can degrade into something horrific.
3: Yeah, it was pretty bad. Some of my um, some of my friends are from um, Albania. Uh, Montenegro and um, mm-hmm. Kosovo, and I remember when some of that was t- going down. Like some of their fathers left, and went over there to kind of help with like the relief efforts and stuff. And um, it was a pretty ugly situation.
0: Yeah, yeah. Those those conflicts get they get they get nasty quick, and then it's very hard to see who's doing what. Right. So. So after that, I moved on to uh, uh, that's uh, after the, the counterterrorism unit. I moved on to doing counterterrorism training, uh, or specifically protective operations training uh, for foreign governments. So I did I, I did uh, two, uh, three years of that, and that was that was great. We'd come in, um, provide training that a lot of these uh, places in South America had never had, um, and we worked with a lot of uh, of good. Um Protective officers from you know young uh, officers i worked in Argentina and Colombia, and uh, some of those areas were more dangerous than others. Colombia was a rough place at the time. Uh, Argentina was nice um, I did that for three years and then i uh i ne- then I went back into actually doing protection uh, i was i was back back in harness uh uh working in um northern africa and uh, middle east
3: so by the it's time that you, you got back in was this after 9 11 or
0: no this is prior okay prior yeah this is um uh, uh 1998 99 uh-huh. and then um in 2000 i decided that uh uh i wanted to try something a little different so i i put in for a job as the uh, senior security officer for uh, uh, an area in Asia, and uh, so that's where I was during nine eleven, and I was working um, in Asia, and uh, a lot. I spent a lot of time working in in the Philippines, um, and uh, a, little, a little bit in Singapore, and that. And uh, that was an interesting time because nine uh, eleven, we had a lot of a lot of terrorist activity down in that area. We had the. the JI operating in indonesia and in the southern philippines you had a variety of groups in the southern philippines and then you had the terrorists uh active actually moving around but they weren't too active in thailand but they were they were there that's in fact that's where that's where we got him bali was he was uh he was moving around in thailand and uh so that was uh three years where i was providing a, a lot of different types of support uh, i was uh um helping the U.S. military with, uh, with um, their operations down in the southern Philippines. I was doing, you know, working counter, the counterterrorism aspect support um, in, uh, in some of the other countries. And then 9-11 hit, and, you know, we were, again, we were rocked by that, um, by, you know, the, the level of ferocity of that attack. And then, and, um, you know, with, with the implications from that moment on. For us, um, you know, for, uh, if, if you work working at the CIA and, and, and after 9-11, you were um, you knew that things were never going to be the same, that the level of responsibility that uh, we took for for not catching that. And I and uh, the 9-11 report uh, clearly showed that, they, that it, it would have been. Amazing if we would have picked up on it because there wasn't enough coordination within the U.S. government. But even with that, everybody working uh, in defense of the United States, whether U.S. military or intel, um, all felt a sense that that we didn't do what what we needed to do to to protect the the homeland. So uh, uh, we, we were darn sure going to do what we needed to do uh, after 9-11. So it became a very, very serious, serious world.
3: Um, can you, if you can, can you describe you know, what that change was like uh, as you were there before 9-11 and then during and after? Before we hear back from Thomas regarding the changes the Central Intelligence Agency underwent after 9-11, I would like to give a quick thank you to my sponsor for this episode, Duke Cannon. When I'm thinking about a bar of soap, I'm not thinking about anything patriotic. But Duke Cannon has superior quality grooming goods and it's for hardworking men and it just so happens that it's tested by soldiers. They partner with the active duty military and help develop these ideas and review some of their products. If it doesn't meet the high standards, it just doesn't happen. Now, I have a bunch of their products. I have their Big Ass Brick of Soap. I have some of the beard stuff and some of the hair products. And I can assure you that there's a very high quality. And most importantly, why I support Duke Cannon is because they give back to the men and women serving our country. So portions of the proceeds that they do generate goes directly to veteran causes. So if you're using Duke Cannon's Big Ass Brick of Soap or premium hair goods and it gives you that news anchor thick hair or your beard and shaving goods that help put your best face forward, don't be surprised if you start singing the national anthem. No, seriously, visit docannon.com right now and get 15% off your first order with the promo code RECON. That's R-E-C-O-N. And they're offering free shipping on orders over $35. Now let's get back to Thomas Pacora and the changes that the CIA went through after the 9-11 attacks.
0: Yeah, uh, I was... Um... I was uh, traveling. I had just gotten back to uh, – I was in the Philippines. I was um, – got a phone call from the deputy, get to a f- television. So I got up into my room and um, turned on the TV just in time to see the um, the first plane – the second plane hit the, the tower. And um, I was working with two other individuals who did not have access to a TV so I had a cell phone in one ear and landline in the other, and I was narrating you know, the events as they occurred. And um, I can't describe how devastating that was. Um, just in terms of the, uh, of, 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 we knew that things would never be the same in terms of our operations. And then the next day, I had to uh, uh, I do some administrative things as picking up some supplies in a mall and in manila and the filipinos were walking around as with no idea that how the world had changed for 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 the u.s and that that was surreal and then our operations took on a whole new level of seriousness and we were We were uh, going after targets as as quickly as we could because, you know, our thought process was at any moment we could be hit again. And that if we didn't uh, catch the bad guy before he got a chance to strike, uh, I mean, we we could lose another 3,000 or more. So um, that was a really serious time. And and the threats just kept popping up. I mean, it's – the, the, the threat on the U S embassy in Singapore and then the U S embassy in Manila, and then, um, all the activities, um, in some of the other parts of the world that where these guys were, were operating. And then, uh, and then after that, we, of course we went into, uh, we went into Iraq and that was my next posting. I went in as they had a security for all of our operations in Iraq, which was a huge, huge, uh, endeavor. I had a staff of uh, about 150 security officers uh, and a variety of people. Um, I had protection units. I had U.S. military detail to me. And we were trying to keep our people safe all over Iraq during a pretty serious uh, conflict time. When I went in in 04, things were starting to get bad. In 03, the Iraqi people were, were not um, – they're they're they were happier about being out from under Saddam Hussein, but by '04 they were uh, there were a lot of elements that were um, uh, unhappy with the situation and were starting to really act up. So we ended up dealing with a lot of uh, uh, indirect fire uh, rockets and mortars into the Green Zone. I was based mainly in the Green Zone, uh, which is uh, this that segment of, of Baghdad that was uh, controlled by. US and um, coalition forces. But I traveled to all the different uh, uh, major cities, to, uh, up to, to uh, Mosul, um, I was in Erbil. I was in, down in Basra, I, I was all over the place, doing security surveys and making sure our facilities were uh, up to snuff. So it was a, it was a pretty, pretty uh, hectic year deployment. So
3: the um, some of the fighting that was starting to take place, or some of the attacks at that point, were, the, were those like elements of the Baptist Party, or was that um, you know there what were really a terrorism different kind
2: different of guys?
0: One of them. One of them was um, uh, was there was a guy who's based just outside the Green Zone, and because of po- political um influence, we were not able to actually go after him. Mm. And uh, so you've got you've got the politics in play. Uh you had elements um you had elements of Al Qaeda working in the area, you had uh former Bath Party people, you had um yeah there we there was a lot lar- it was Iraq had one of the largest standing armies and we had disbanded them. Right. And they had also um, the equivalent of two-thirds of the U.S. arsenal worth of munitions in that country. So <laughs> bombs, you know, their explosives and weapons and all over the place. Um, and what happened was that uh, all these groups started using them uh, in a variety of ways. We had, as I said, indirect fire. We had some very strong attacks on convoys along Route Irish, which is the route between the uh, – Baghdad Airport right. and, um, and, ba- and Baghdad proper.
3: Right, very and,
0: like, uh, uh, infamous um, route. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep, yep. That was deadly. In fact, I was there, there when we shut it down. We basically said no more, um, no more regular movements on Rod irish It was just too dangerous. Murder, clearly it was October. It was, we were getting hit so bad that um, basically said we, we can't do this anymore. So we did mainly uh, helicopter operations to move back and forth, which was a major, a major inconvenience to say the least. And, and uh, at that point, it wasn't all terrible. I mean, it was a, there was it was an interesting time to be a part of such a huge element. I and mean, the, the last time the agency had a presence that big in in, in one place was in uh, was in Vietnam.
3: And were you guys and already yeah. had, uh, dealing with Al Qaeda in Iraq at that point?
0: Yes, there were insurgent. I mean, at that point, it was um, this was where the U.S. Army was, U.S. military, and um, uh, the there were elements who were out there thinking, okay, we're going to attack these guys wherever they are. So they were coming in, and um, and then of course we had the Iranian influence. They were they were actively um, working with different groups, uh, providing uh, support. Um, To attack uh, coalition forces, it was uh, it was pretty bad. And it was pretty bad. Were you aware
3: of the Iranian support at that
0: time? Yes. Yeah, that was that was I mean, they 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 busted safe houses where there were, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of of dollars on the table that the uh, the Iranians had supplied to to uh, bolster up the uh, insurgents. And then there was also munitions and things that they were bringing in that were um, – that w- they were using <clears> – <throat> they were helping supply um, the insurgents in, uh, with uh, technology uh, in terms of uh, IEDs improvised um, explosive device um, detonation uh, electronics so they could use cell phones to detonate them uh, rather than um, using hard wire, which – uh, and then, then eventually, that changed into what they call the EFPs, right? And Explosive explosives really, projectiles, right?
3: That was really devastating yeah. for coalition um, yeah. forces. Yeah,
0: because that started to. to uh, we we had, you know, we were combating their small arms fire, and then later on, some of their smaller explosives with with heavy armor. We were, uh, you know, some of the best armor ever devised. But then um, these EFPs were brought in. And that's actually kind of a merging of new technology and old technology. Um, EFP is a, basically a platter charge, uh, but uh, jazzed up to, to have electronics, so you could do remote detonation. And uh, they were able; to, these things would tear through the armor like a hot knife through butter. Right.
3: And w- were that those EFPs were they more directly affecting the British, or was that just coalition
0: forces in general? oh it's in general i i, I was <clears throat> i left uh when they really started to kick in um in 05 and uh that's when we that's when we knew that they were there that these electronics were being supplied uh by somebody cuz this was advanced electronics and uh yeah that was uh it got to be very bad and um the uh there wasn't a clear path on what you know how we were going to uh, address the situation and that that's one of the, the you know the negative parts of, of that whole um Iraq situation is that there wasn't a clear plan you know once we disarm this military this large military force what are you going to do with all these people right
3: um right yeah, I, I think I mean, a lot of people political. look at that moment as one of the the, the errors that kind of led to the destabilization of Iraq. I think, like
0: the errors on the yeah. part of the U.S. Uh, decision makers. Correct, and the other part I think was that they that they assumed that these groups that the 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 Shia, the Shia, the Sunni, and the Kurds, once they were out from under the the Saddam Hussein reign, that they would be more reasonable in their in their activities, and they, and they, they were like squabbling children,
3: right? And I think and, um, um, what's his name, uh, Al-Zakari played a really big role in kind of uh, that destabilization process as well.
0: Yep, yep. and there was uh, there was there was a couple of elements that were really causing problems, and and the wholesale slaughter. I mean, the the, the, the um, it wasn't just going after coalition forces; they were right. the, the Shia and the Sunni were. I mean, I uh, I was in in our or main building in Baghdad when a thousand pound truck bomb went off, uh, not too far away. And it, sh- I mean, it shook this solid concrete building and, uh, the devastation, uh, that I saw in the area when I got there, you know, in terms of the crater and the cars blown up on the roofs. And, and that was, that was Iraqi killing Iraqi. right? And, uh, it just, uh it's it's almost mind numbing uh, how how badly things got.
3: Yeah, I think you know. I think that aspect is one thing that people um, looking back kind of skip over. Like I, I was um, recently, I was listening to a podcast and this woman was talking about how the U.S. killed like two million people in Iraq or something like that. I feel like anybody who knows anything about it or anyone who's been there off the bat knows that that's not accurate. she has she has a popular platform and a big following online and it's just amazing how people can skip over the fact that there was an actual civil war um, between Iraqis you know during the the uh, American occupation. It just kind of goes to show how much how people just kind of follow whatever narrative supports their viewpoints you know mhm
0: that's that and you you bring up a great point <clears throat> there's um it's easy. It's easier to be led uh, astray uh, from from a vast distance when you don't understand all the complexities. And, and a lot of these things are really complex. I mean, and do we know? Do we all know the, the the true situation? Probably not. But if you, as you as you mentioned, if you've been there, if you've seen some of things that that were occurring, you you, you it's um, the propaganda is is uh, I mean the. I was there during a couple of, of really important events, uh, one of which was um, there was more electricity in Baghdad uh, in '05 than there had been during the entire Saddam Hussein reign. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, infrastructure-wise, we were, we were making and – and that was despite the fact that these insurgents were blowing up stuff. Um, the second thing is, I was there for for their for a, their first democratic vote,
3: mm.
0: and people came out of the woodwork to vote, and it was extremely dangerous, right. and there were very there were almost no casualties because the the coalition forces made such an effort to ensure that these people were able to vote. So it's um, you know those those are huge uh, moments that people. Um, it, it can, can easily lose track and, um, uh, uh, it's, uh, the, these conflicts start out sometimes with the best of intentions and then things get out of, uh, out of, out of hand. I mean, you know, look at, look at the, the Afghan situation. Um, uh, I, I not to be political, but I have no idea why we're still there. Right. And. To tell you, with my last position at the agency was uh, I was involved in I was the deputy chief of security for the counterterrorism center. And one of my major uh, projects was to work with the military and State Department in, in uh, uh, demobilization or, or basically uh, we, we, were, we were pulling out. And uh, we had a date of 2014. Now, this is uh, 2012 and 2013. That I was working that project. So we were set to leave Afghanistan in 2014.
3: Right, and five so years later, you know, we're still there.
0: We're still, there. yeah, yeah. It- Can't tell you why. <laughs> so, it's it's one of the hard parts about being in, in government service that people don't understand. Is you know they say, oh, what about this and that? Um, you've got a mission. Uh, you know, I've seen so many different presidents. I've seen so many different directors of, of central intelligence i've seen all that but when you're in the, when you're down in the trenches doing your job um, you have your you you, you have your uh, assignments and you have to do them
3: right right and you know after um i mean fairly quickly the us got the taliban out and al qaeda out of afghanistan and then um, i guess like right away the mission changed into like this kind of nation building and um, oh. that's where things got really messy, you know?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, it, they, don't, they don't want democracy. Right. And they're not ready for democracy. And um, that right there is everything. And, it, and the other part is I, I believe in determinism. Uh, you know, if, if, <clears throat> if they want to vote in a Taliban government, then that's – then they voted it in. It's not our it's not our place to change that, but uh, but that's you know I, I I you know I disagree with some of the things that we're doing, but that's I disagree with other things that we've done too. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> we're not always right. Nobody nobody's always right. But uh, it, it's 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 just hard to sit back and, and watch some of our troops uh, lose their lives. In that conflict, when really it's uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's over. Um, and the Taliban, other than the fact that they harbored um, Al Qaeda, um, they've never really been involved in any attacks on the U.S. outside of Afghanistan.
3: Right. So they, they so, pretty much stick to their, you know, their country,
0: and that's it. Yeah. That, yeah. <clears throat> I, and I think that if we just said, okay. Go back to here's your country back here. You can take it, and uh, um, you know this is uh, uh, just don't just don't harbor anybody, and don't run any training camps, and we're fine. But uh, the, the, there's always a lot more interesting things that are going on. I give you an example like uh, Mogadishu. Why were we in Somalia when we weren't in some of these other countries in Afghanistan or enough? Af- pardon me, in Africa that we're going through similar humanitarian crisis. Well, I can tell you one fact, one piece of it, uh, of information. 70% of the oil drilling rights in Somalia were owned by us companies. Hmm. Hmm. There you go. Right. <laughs> it, it, it always seems it to be that. that. Yeah. So it's, uh, you got to, sometimes you got to follow the money.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh,
0: yeah. That doesn't say that we were not, saving a lot of lives. I mean uh, Mogadishu was and is Mad Max. It's
3: well, still to this day.
0: Oh, it's horrific. And um their best days over the you know, over the last well the, the amount of, of aid that came in there and, and when I was there in ninety three, those were some pretty good times. Um they hadn't had it that good for probably a decade. And then since then they probably haven't had it. Um, in terms of food and supplies, and um, places is a mess. Uh, and, I, and I know we're back in there again.
3: Okay. I think it was um, the people responsible for the attack on uh, the USS Cole or I think it was the embassy in Tanzania. I think they, they tracked one or two of those guys to Somalia and they ended up killing them, uh, at some point. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: They're, they're, it's a bad group that's over there. Boko Haram and all of And the other, uh, the other elements that are in, I think, it's one of the. they they're, it's a hotbed. It's, it's a, the problem with those locations are, um, when they're that chaotic, uh, they attract the wrong elements, and then those elements start to bring in troops or, or, or individuals and train them up, and then they go off, and it gets to become a bad cycle. And, and the history has shown that when these, um, these lawless areas uh, are unmonitored, um, they start to breed a, a really bad element that, that will have an effect on the rest of the world. Yeah, you know, people. You can't just say it's Somalia. We'll just leave them be.
3: Yeah, it's it's kind of um, just kind of talking to people or being in environments that has nothing to do with any of that kind of stuff. You know, counterterrorism or anything like that. And then somehow the conversation may get may turn to something about foreign policy or something like that. I think people really underestimate uh, how bad. Or, or how connected this um, ideology that the U.S. is trying to counter, what we call terrorism, as it's, you know, there's elements connected all over the world. I think pe- a lot of people don't really realize how, how um, connected it, some of it is.
0: Yes. And and that's one of the things that, uh, not to, to segue back to the book, but that's one of the things that, I ha- in the process of writing, um, uh, the book i had two uh, co-writers to help me organize it and uh what came out was uh, they jokingly called me the forrest gump of security because <laughs> i kept being there during these you know these very important events and one of the things that you know uh, i i've worked against bin laden fr- from somalia all the way until i left in in, in uh until he was killed and um the 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 terrorism um, connection, the thread, is r- goes right through the book, and and you can see how our actions and our uh, and the world is has been so affected by it. And sometimes we don't we don't understand that. Okay, that's Asia. That doesn't matter. Well, actually, it does. It matters a lot. I mean, uh, for example, in the Philippines, we have a huge U.S population of expats and um uh and and then then you talk about the training camps in, the, in different places and how they've had an effect the training camps in pakistan that that caused huge plots uh to hatch in in coming out of england and coming out of uh europe so uh, these things are as you pointed out they're they're so interconnected and it, sometimes it's hard to see. But uh, one of the things I try to bring together in the book is, is the, the thread that these things are connected. And they're um, – and you, you're, it's the – you used to call it like whack-a-mole. You know, uh, you, that, it jumps up one side, you whack it down, and then it jumps up on the other side. And you're continuously having to fight these – firefight these little um, outbursts. But if you don't, you're uh, – You'll be overwhelmed.
3: Yeah, and I think a lot of people in the West, uh, Western Europe or you know, America and Canada, I think um, people didn't pay much attention to this until it started happening in the West. But some of these you know, terrorist attacks and things like that, they've been going on in Southeast Asia, the Middle East and Africa for years. Um, oh, yeah. It just wasn't until... 93 that we kind of got a taste of it. And then September 11th, like changed everything, but people don't realize uh, how much of a problem this has been over time, you know, since the end of, oh, end of world you're... war two, you know,
0: spot on, spot on. I mean, um, for example, uh, the, the third, it may not be accurate now because the, there's some changes in the middle East, but up until recently, the, the, the country with the third largest number of improvised explosive device incidents was Thailand. Really? Yep. Southern Thailand. But they, they keep that under wraps. And then the conflict, the, 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 the insurgency, the, the fundamentalist um, Islamic, uh, uh, terrorist aspects in the Southern Philippines have been a nonstop threat for, uh, probably a hundred years. And then um, you can pick spots all over the world. And one of the things that's interesting phenomena you can track this is um, uh, the phenomenon when that when when certain dictators are lo- no longer in power, what has happened to their their empires? Um, Yugoslavia was a beautiful vacation hotspot for it was uh, for for decades. Soon as he. Was no longer there, we had a massive conflict. Uh, Saddam Hussein, after he left, so the Shia and the Sunni and the Kurds are all at it. And um, there's lots of conflicts, areas like that, where without a strong leader of some sort, um, the factions just go um, and wreak havoc. So, interesting phenomena, not that I. Was a political science major. What uh, <laughs> well, life experience.
3: I, I think you see that
0: in, in Libya as well. Ab- absolutely, absolutely. Um, Libya is a, is a perfect example of, of what what we lost in terms of um, uh, stability. I mean, the, the Middle East is is as bad as it was when I first started the agency. We we got some stability. During the period of time that I was the latter part of my career, but then now it's it's just back to being unstable. I mean, uh, we don't know what's going on in Yemen. We don't know what's going on in Libya. We don't. Uh, Egypt's a little shaky. Um, we got a lot of uh, there's a lot of stuff going on.
3: Yeah, I was looking at um potentially taking a vacation to Egypt. You know, I'd like to see the pyramids and stuff, but checking out the state department's website there's certain areas where they just say just don't go to uh because of the the terrorist threat and i have some friends in israel and i asked them about it and they pretty much said the same thing and yeah but i think compared to a lot of those countries in that area egypt stayed somewhat afloat you know during the arab spring and that.
0: well and and the here's the, the the funny thing is we some of us were actually watching it and and Chuckling because we saw how the real ruling party stayed in power. the 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 military has always mainly, you know, ruled the, the Egypt. And what happened with when Mubarak was um, overthrown, which is another uh, another loss. Um, the uh, The Egyptian military stepped back and said, "Oh, well, you want to put in the Muslim Brotherhood? Okay, fine." And they said, and they stepped back and let them do it knowing full well that these guys had no experience running a country and they would mess it up and the people would eventually turn on them, which they did.
3: So it was, um, the, the Muslim Brotherhood took over right after Mubarak and then the military stepped in after that, right?
0: Yes. They stepped in after the public basically said, you guys don't know how to run anything. And they, they turned on the Muslim brotherhood and the, and the, and the military steps in and says we'll save the day. <laughs> they were always there in power, right?
3: And did they target the Muslim Brotherhood uh, during that period, or?
0: Oh, they waited. They just waited. They patiently waited. It was. I, I hate to say, but there's a. There were uh, quite a few of us who could actually. See, you know, we were watching this happen, and because it was such a smart move, um, don't don't get in a conflict. Just step back because. These groups don't. They have no idea how to govern. Yeah,
3: yeah. I, you know that's a really interesting point. I was, um, I, I think maybe I was doing a little bit of research to write an article on the subject. But d- d- in that research, I, I came to the conclusion that a lot of these groups, the terrorist groups, or they may be effective at on the. Um, Acts of terrorism, bombing, shooting, or or direct combat. But mm-hmm. once they get to the point where they have to actually govern, they're completely terrible at it, and almost all of the time, the people end up turning against them, which is really kind of interesting.
0: Yes, yeah, it's um. Now the the ones that that start off for a while doing, um, you, you know, like they change into they change into a, like a political group. And or a, fract- a faction of them does, and they get more involved in the government and they learn. Then there's there's a little bit more of a chance that that government is going to su- survive. But ter- uh, running a terrorist group and running a government, you know, making sure that the garbage is picked up on time and the trains run on right. time and all that—that's another ballgame.
3: Right, and I think out of probably all the terrorist groups, I think. People might have thought the Muslim Brotherhood; they might have been the ones to be able to do it, but evidently not.
0: No, no, they they didn't they didn't pull it off. But they didn't have the experience. They were and uh, and and the, Mubarak ran a pretty good um, tight ship. And there was a I mean, I'll give you an example from my optic as a security officer when after Gaddafi rolled over and basically started to be. Um, to play ball with the West and not, you know, get involved in stuff. We didn't. We didn't have a single plot coming out of Libya. Right. All right. And then, at a certain point, you have to say, okay, um, that's a good thing. That's a good thing for world stability. That's a good thing for for everybody. Um, Mubarak things he kept a, a tight ship, but then when he got taken out, what did you have? You have a terrorist group running. It's like um, the situation in um, in, uh, in in the Palestinian Authority. You got a terrorist group running the government. And they're not doing a great job.
3: Yeah. The the podcast that I listened to the other day, I told you the woman was talking about uh, the number of casualties in, in Iraq. She also spoke uh, heavily on on the Israel Palestine issue, and um, she was talking about uh, how the Israeli security forces are very harsh and, and things like that, and and talking about um, the settlements and how they're you know they're kicking people out of their homes and that kind of thing. And I'm not a hundred percent read into that, but mm-hmm. then and then she started talking about. Um, when they had a, a, a series of protests over a period of time, when it got it got violent and some people were killed, and she was just completely leaving out the fact that there were actual attacks on Israel and um, terrorist attacks, and they were firing, you know, weapons from hospitals, and just completely leaves that part out, and it, you know, I lose respect for somebody when they do things like that, cause you're, you're skewing the information and you're not giving the full picture, you know?
0: Exactly. It's, it's, um, it's a, it's a, it's a very confusing picture right. if you, if you study the whole and, and you're, you're right. I mean, there's, there are, there are things that are not being, um, that have not worked on both sides. Right. Um, but, but the violence, if if you, if pe- people who who ignore the violence committed by the Palestinian groups, uh, they're missing a lot of history. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, if you look back, there was a point where Palestinian terrorists killed more Americans than any other terrorist group. Was that in in Beirut or in ver- all different areas? I mean, I remember uh, the Kili Laurel? Uh, that was that that was a Palestinian. That was the PLO. Right. Right. And so people forget these guys. I mean, you know, so so there's there's some some from a security point of view, I, you know, I, I focus on on the threat and and who, who are they? You know, what's the, what's the history? And the history is that, uh, you know, these guys have been very uh, aggressive and and very deadly in terms of their uh, dealings with the U.S., yeah, so
3: I, I think looking back uh, at at the beginning of the PLO and, and the Asher Arafat, they were doing they were kind of running the first um, sort of runs of of what we consider terrorism with bombings and things like that, like really early on on the uh, from the birth of the you know the country of Israel and you know using bombs on the road and things like that. And I mean, years ago, like in the 50s. So it's really Mm -hmm. interesting if you look back at the history. And then, uh, you know, I'd known that there was conflict in in Beirut in in the 80s. -hmm. But what I didn't know until recently was uh, it got really bad once Palestinian groups moved into Beirut. And uh, I I didn't know that. And then, you know, the Israeli military went in and enforced and kind of forced them out. And, mm-hmm. and then, I mean, there was a lot going on in, in Beirut during that time. Sure. And then I think the, the Jordanians had an issue with them as well. So it's just kind of looking at at history, people just completely ignore that. And, and some of that information, you wouldn't ever see it on any kind of mainstream uh, channels, you know?
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, looking back on the history, uh, the uh, U.S. ambassador to Sudan was killed by Black September. PLO. Really? What, when was that? Like 70, in the 60s or? 73. Wow. And then, um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, they, I mean, there's, there's a, just a variety. I mean, PLO was attacking, uh, they were attacked the Rome airport, killing a right. number of people. I mean, they were involved in a lot of things and, you know, I, we just can't forget, we just have to put it all in perspective. That's all. I mean, I, I, I don't want to be, uh, um, you know, too one-sided. Uh, but you have to, from from a security point of view, if you're looking at threats, certain elements of uh, have a history, and uh, we have to be have to be uh, uh, careful. But we don't forget that. Uh,
3: it's it's such an interesting thing. I feel like that happens so so often where. We go through an experience, and you know, maybe two decades later, or even longer than that, we just kind of completely forget that it happened, and we don't use the information that we gained from that. Um, and it's really strange how I think how that happens. Like over time, kind of repeats itself, you know.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. That's that's one of the things. Uh, w- looking at the, the 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 repetitive of threats. You know, the same types of things happen and you can you can extrapolate based on you know previous experiences. But if you forget about it, or you don't follow it or you don't uh, or, or you, it's so easy to fall in the trap of, uh, of um, not being prepared or being surprised, being surprised by it. Um, the uh, terrorist activities have some of the basics have not changed. The players have changed, but some of the basics have not changed. So, uh, especially working in protective operations, you, at one, at any point, I mean we can look back at some of the friends we have now were enemies not too long ago. So, <laughs> or fr- friends that we had not too long ago are now enemies. Correct. I have friends in the military who are in uh training uh foreign uh, military liaisons, and they trained so many of the guys that later on became our enemies. <laughs> they trained Iraqis, they trained the Iranians, yep. they trained the Libyans, they trained all these people. Just a matter of when, what timing. What was the timing?
3: Yeah, so. yeah. It's 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 really sort of fascinating. What um, so after kind of going back after you left Iraq, mm-hmm. what was the next kind of step for you?
0: Um, I did, uh, I did a quick back to Iraq, uh, trip. I was, I led the secret service advance for, uh, vice president Cheney's secret visit to, uh, Baghdad. And then I went back into headquarters for a while and then I was surged, uh, from that, from there, um, uh, to get bin Laden. That was the, that was the part of that, um, as I said, the zero dark 30 period where, um, I actually worked with the lady in the movie called Maya. Oh, yeah. And, um, yeah. And uh, uh, w- w- I was working in, in, in the uh, PAC-Afghan area, and uh, I was running uh, security for uh, a large part of that region. And so we were dealing with a lot of uh, the super high threat level, both in Afghanistan and Pakistan, and um, dealing with – you know, we're tr- we're trying to track him Laden and and there weren't too many of us who were surprised when when we found him in Asadabad, um, right? Yeah, the, because um, there was just there were too many que- uh, clues, and the Pakistanis have not been not have not been up uh, up front with us and and forthright. So that's, that's a that's a pretty murky situation right there. Absolutely. But I, I spent uh, 15 months in in working that area, especially a lot of work in Pakistan during some serious threats. I left just before um, they 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 blew up, uh, uh, completely destroyed the the Marriott in Islamabad. Oh,
3: there was and, a big, uh, a big but, bombing there,
0: right? Oh yeah, but there were there were multiple bombings on that Iraq, uh, on that Marriott uh, over the years. Um, there, there had been a bombing in the front and there were a guy, uh, I was actually in Pakistan working at one point when, um, a suicide bomber with a vest tried to get in the back door and a Pakistani parking lot guard stopped him. Oh, wow. Uh, unfortunately he blew up and, and killed the guard and which was horrific. But then, um, after that I, I, I needed to take a break. So I, uh, I, I left, uh, I went on, I de- it was detailed over to the NRO, the National Reconnaissance Office. That's a, the satellite uh, organization. And I worked uh, the, the large, as a director of security for the largest mission ground station that uh, the NRO has. 3,700 people and a million square feet of skiff. So it was, and uh, it was quite a, a complex uh, element and that's where I actually get back into the, uh, active shooter situation. Cause that was, uh, just after, um, uh, a couple of incidents, including Fort hood. So I had to, uh, I had to re- reconfigure, um, my thought processes from terrorism to <laughs> you could call it internal terrorism. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And then uh, I did, uh, I did two years there and then I went back to headquarters and, uh, worked uh, special projects for the Anti-Terrorism Force Protection Office. Um, That's where I got involved in in, uh, uh, working um, on uh, emergency action planning for our our personnel overseas, specifically uh, uh, action plans, emergency evacuation plans, uh, things like that, Um, upgrading um, the policies and procedures And then working on some of their physical security projects. And then I eventually left that job and wound up as a – my last position was as deputy chief of security for CTC, which is a huge element. And I was very involved in supporting uh, operations in Afghanistan and Iraq and uh, part of the drawdown or the the attempt to drawdown.
3: So I wanted to ask about um – so bob Benghazi, and and the reason I want to ask is because of your experience mm-hmm. in the security side so the the security team members who were there uh they were part of the g r s was that did did some of the roles that you were working in evolve into that at some point, or is that just something completely different
0: um, i uh, let me answer that by saying um the the poc um the poc uh changed names and that is that same unit is to the same is the same unit okay okay <laughs> sorry i had to be oblique no no that's, fine. Um, that's fine so yeah uh certain things i've been i'm not allowed to to talk about right and um but that is the same unit okay. And uh, speaking of Benghazi, um, that is one of those situations where um, the primary mission uh, w- t- took a backseat to the secondary mission, which was basically static security. And that's when things go uh, bad sometimes. Now, I will tell you this. Uh, having worked in embassies all over the world, I've been fifty-something countries. Uh, a lot of repeats in the bad places. Uh, you wouldn't want to go if your if your travel agent you ever suggested traveling for vacation to most of the places I've been to, fire them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but <laughs> the uh, uh, unfortunately, the State Department, because of the nature of the of that beast, they are they have. Um, routinely taking risks, um, with the security of their, of their personnel, um, because they look at things from a political optic. And whenever we decide that place is too dangerous, um, to have our embassy personnel, what, what clearly comes across to the outer world is that, um, the not only is the place really dangerous, but the host government is not able to fulfill its requirements because per the Geneva convention, the host government is responsible for the security of all the embassies. So in other words, the Russian embassy, the German embassy, the French embassy, the, all the embassies that are in Washington DC, their protection is the responsibility of the U S government. Right. And so when we're in, in this case, um, uh, Benghazi, that host government was supposed to be providing protection. They were not capable of that, and instead of uh, basically pulling out and sending, you know, which would send a message, which would which would uh, which had a political effect, we the the, the State Department decided to stay in. And they've done this many, many times, but th- this time they they th- they rolled the dice and they lost. And, um, and these
3: are decisions doctor, not made obviously by the the uh, the security or the, or the people running security.
0: Nope. Now, people running security, uh, th- as the evidence has shown, um, put in multiple requests for upgrades, and the, the situation, their sit reps uh, were very clear that the threat level was very high. So um, that was a failure at the top leadership levels. Absolutely. And there is no way they're going around it. Uh, And uh, to give you uh, the the equivalency, as I said, Les Aspen, Secretary of Defense, was fired from his job after Black Hawk Down because the military asked for additional armor and he turned them down for political reasons. Right, and it, you can none of that, from there.
3: Yeah, none of that makes any sense. Like what, you know, because the the uh, the guys on the ground are there already, or in many cases engaged in combat. So why not just give them what they need to do the job? You know, it's just really kind of crazy. Be,
0: well, because it because from a political from the political standpoint of the State Department, if you get if you bulk up your security that much, you're you're sending the wrong message. And well, their opinion—the wrong message to the host government. Um, they're basically saying, "Oh, you guys are are not competent, um, and we don't trust you." Now, and that is the right message under certain circumstances. But in this case, they didn't—they didn't follow
3: through. So you feel like in in some instances, it's it's totally worth that extra security. Or if it's not worth Absolutely. the actual security, then just pull out completely or, or scale Absolutely. back.
0: Absolutely, One are, You've got you should you should be adjusting based on threat. Every, uh, we, uh, in the security at the at the CIA, we are we are a threat based um, uh, reactionary element. We are continuously reassessing the threat and adjusting based on the threat. And when you start to add political aspects to it, you you color the water, and it gets it to be very murky. And and um, there, are mo- I can't tell you uh, there's so many occasions where the um, politics have played a role, and people have gotten hurt over the years. I mean, there was a church bombing in pa- in Islamabad years ago that was the result of, of a a political decision to not increase the threat level.
3: And increasing the threat level would increase the security.
0: Would have, would have, yeah would have increased security posture and would have, uh, uh, people would not have been allowed to go out to this church. I see where they were killed by a guy through, through grenade. So, and, and I got that from a, from the State Department regional security officer who was there in Pakistan at the time this was his his assessment was that that was clearly a political decision and I have my years in the working uh, with State Department I, can, I I'm not trying to to there um, there's a lot of good people who work at State Department but in this case they 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 have a, a tendency to opt against security. the Security is not their big thing.
3: And is that because the, um, and it, it's kind of a, a question I've always had.
0: But a, lot of, like, a lot of their leadership is, is they're appointed.
3: Right, right. By, by,
0: so by yeah, politicians. A, uh, yep. They're politicians, so they really don't understand the, uh, the, you know, they're not part of that organization. Usually the, the number two in an embassy, the DCM, Deputy Chief of Mission, Usually that person is a career diplomat. Right. And they have a good grasp. But these but these political appointees, a lot of times they have really no background.
3: I, I always and find that strange. Like why would they let someone with no security background or someone who's at least someone who studied it extensively into these type of roles, I always find that a little
0: weird. Yeah, it's it's an unusual phenomenon. It's um, it the system and and uh, I'll tell you this: this the uh, the regional security officers uh, or you know, the diplomatic security bureau, uh, diplomatic security, which is the the security element of the State Department, right. they're a very professional, um, uh, hardworking group, and they do their best. But they're um, they can only do what they can do, and. And their management didn't back them. So
3: the, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's politics to some degree in, in, mm. in all the the agencies, and uh, but I would sure. I would imagine that there's less of that at the CIA, and is that just because of the nature of the the organization, or?
0: Um. Well, yeah. Some of it's one of the interesting things about security is um, at the CIA, um, the office of security was we, we call it baked in, not bolted on. Because we were, we were implemented, we were part of, part of the original element in 1947. So we've had security in the CIA since pretty much the beginning. Um, and that does have a huge impact on how you look at the world and, and what you do. Um, uh, where State Department had, um, it, it's, it's been harder for them to operate. Um, the FBI didn't have any security, real security element until after their, 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 uh, their spy Hansen. And, and when you say, they security, never had a security element. they didn't have a, a career. They did not, they did not have a, an established security office hmm. in the FBI, which turned out to be a problem.
3: And is that, is that different from like the, um, the HRT, like a
0: unit like that? Or would they fall under that? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. HRT, uh, hostage rescue team, that's, that's, uh, that's a, a tactical team. I'm talking about a, um, an office of security that is focused on, a v- on security from a variety of aspects. We're talking about physical security. We're talking about technical security, computer security, uh, personnel security. And part of personnel security is clearances and things like that and counter, um, counterintelligence, uh, an element that is internal looking at your operations. And, um, yeah, they, they didn't really, there, there was no real career track. There was no, there was nothing. They had the equivalent of hall moderners. just about the best they had. Well,
3: so, yeah. so kind of following, um, you know, the, the tail end of your career and then when you actually retired, uh, how has that transition been for you from retiring from
0: the agency in Australia? Oh, it's, it's been interesting. <laughs> Transitioning from a, from a, I mean, I, the longest span I ever spent and in really, in really, really in one place was the three years I was in Asia. And that's over 24 uh, years. 24 years. Uh, I did spend about four years work, you know, I had an apartment at a four, four consecutive years, but I was gone for so much of it. I don't even count that. So, um, so with it, with quite a vagabond career, I had, I had, I didn't have a traditional career. I was out about way too much. And So it it, it's a strange lifestyle, and um, it takes some serious uh, adjustment afterwards. And uh, uh, some of my friends used to say I I was seduced by the dark side of the (laughs) force because I kept taking these different jobs that kept me traveling, but they were so interesting um, that I I personally had a hard time uh, turning them down. But there came a point where I realized, you know, I I'd worked every major conflict area that the us government had been in since 93 and it was 2013 and we were looking at Yemen and Libya and um uh just a variety of other bad places and I and I'd gotten way too good at war zones and uh I just didn't know how many cat lives I had left um so I said "Nah," there were other things that I wanted to do um and so I decided that I would, uh, I, I, um, retired. And, uh, actually we like to call it transitioned. I transitioned into, uh, from, from one career track into another. So now I, I work, um, I have a small consultancy and I basically, um, do uh, some security assessments. I work, uh, in the area of active shooter. I write a lot of articles about personal safety and, um, so, uh, but the adjustment, uh, moving back to my hometown and, uh, it's been, it's been interesting. It's not, it's, I, I'd be lying to you if I said it was easy. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, it's been, it's been an adjustment going from 60 miles an hour to, to 10 miles an hour is, is a change.
3: Right. Getting off that train. Yep. Yep. And was there one specific thing that kind of, pushed you towards retirement or was it just like a, a culmination of everything?
0: Uh, I think one of the, one of the huge factors was, um, I was just missing out on too much family stuff. Um, I have a daughter and, uh, uh, she's, uh, half English, half, U- uh, US set. And, uh, I, uh, I found out that I just, just was spending too much time gone and I was going to miss out on too many things. And so I, uh, that was a huge factor i was able to be around for uh to to be at her wedding and um, and then I, you know, there's always the elderly parents situation and um there's some other things personally that i like to do I, I i used to coach wrestling so i'm back doing that nice uh, yeah so you know some some things i just couldn't do before that uh, now i i can i can do so and I'm enjoying that. And also I was getting a little long in the tooth to be hitting the war zone stuff. Uh, <laughs> it's time for the youngsters to take their place.
3: Right. Right. Absolutely. And so speaking of the, the wrestling part was the, was, um, like miss martial arts and combatives a, a part of your job or were you guys focused more on like weapons
0: and stuff like that? Uh, some combatives, but, um, for me, the, the, a lot, a lot of the, uh, the principles that I learned in wrestling were, you know, applied in terms of work ethic, huge. Um, you know, you know the ability to, uh, self critique, um, was a huge, uh, had a huge impact in terms of my ability to, to, uh, to learn and improve my capabilities. Um, physically, it helped me because, uh, when you're working in these different wars and you're doing certain things, you be, you know, you might be carrying body armor, you might be hauling rucksacks. So, uh, staying in shape was, was, a, was a major factor uh, for me, um, and also it's a, it's a credibility thing uh, when you're in certain areas where uh, you're working with, uh, with elite units in the military, um, and uh, uh, in a lot of cases I was providing on-the-ground on briefings to them, um, uh, so it, it, it definitely uh, was a, a factor. Plus, there's a very aggressive mindset in wrestling, so it, it, which helps when you're dealing with some of the things that I had to deal with in terms of threats. And, right. Um, yeah.
3: Right. Well, you know, it, it was really good to sit down and talk to you. Um, so what's the best place that anyone from the audience who, who may be interested in, in learning more about your career, what's the best place where they can go and, and pick up a copy of your book? You said Amazon or?
0: Um Yes, uh, I, I have a LinkedIn page um, under Thomas Picora, And I, uh, I put in, uh, I, every two weeks, I do an excerpt from the book with some photos. And um, uh, the book is available for pre-publication sale, which means that you, you can buy it, but it won't be delivered until the 7th of May. That's on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And then I also have uh, uh, a Facebook page for the book, it's a guardian on Facebook and um, I put um, some articles in there. I will be having a putting a, a video with a what's it's a video slideshow with a lot of photos and some background on the book and, and my career on that. And then I'll be doing some hopefully you'll be doing some book signings in all uh, once the book comes out. So um, that's pretty much what I've been. Been very focused on on uh, working to get the book out. It's been a, it's been a three year odyssey for for the process of, of getting the book together. Yeah. Uh, yeah, getting getting the book approved by the CIA's publication review board has been a um It's been an interesting three years. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of working with them to get details out because this is um, uncharted territory. Um, uh, there's never been. Really, any of these uh, the details about this unit um, previously uh, exposed. Mm. So uh, the agency uh, was uh, naturally very reticent about um, allowing me to share certain stories, but they were. Uh, I was able to get a lot of a lot of the information out. So I think uh, people will find it interesting, and um, it's it's a uh, it definitely uh, exposes people to protective operations in the war zones and how low profile differs from high profile protection like the secret service does. So it's a pretty informative book in terms of that.
3: Yeah. I I can't wait to actually pick up a copy of it. Um, You know, just from our conversation, it's it's clear to me that you have some uh, profound experiences and uh, you know, I look forward to reading about it in full detail in the book and I would recommend for my audience to pick up a copy if they can, Um, so like I said you know it was great to be able to sit down and and talk to you about some of these things and some of your experiences and um, you know I I hope everything works out for you going forward
0: great thanks John appreciate you uh, having me as a guest on your show
3: Uh, no problem thank you Before we hear back from thomas regarding the changes the central intelligence agency underwent after 9-11 i would like to give a quick thank you to my sponsor for this episode duke cannon now let's get back to thomas Bakora and the changes that the cia went through after the 9-11 attacks